Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. My guest today is Roy Teixeira. Um, he's a political scientist, an author, um, a, a thinker. He's uh, written a bunch of books that, that I really like, including The Emerging Democratic Majority, Red, Blue, and Purple America, America's Forgotten Majority, um, a book called um, The Optimistic Leftist that we talk about a bunch here. He's also involved with a new website called The Liberal Patriot. This is a conversation about sort of what has worked and what has not worked in Democratic Party electoral strategy as the country has evolved. Why did the the Latino vote and to an extent the African-American vote break for Trump? What do sort of leftists get wrong about the arc of history and, and American politics? Um, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I think people will find plenty to disagree with here, but I think also maybe a lot to learn from. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Roy Teixeira, is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, as well as one of the instigators of a, a new project called The Liberal Patriot. I um, wanted to talk to him about that project and uh, some of his his ideas about politics. Roy's a guy I've been learning from, listening to uh, for 20, 20 years now. I think I'm getting older than I like to admit. It happens um, to everybody. You've written, I think, some sort of bracing stuff about progressive politics in the wake of an election that, you know, Democrats won. And I think most people in the progressive camp just kind of want to feel happy about having won and like don't want to hear from any sort of naysayers. Um, and I wonder, like, why why have you been sort of ringing alarms about things? Well, um, certainly one reason to ring an alarm is the Democrats, they are confronting in 2022 what is likely to be a very tough election. Historically, these are difficult elections for incumbent parties. Uh, the Democrats have an extremely thin House majority. And as everybody knows, they're on a razor's edge in the Senate. They can't afford to, to lose uh, seats. They need to gain seats. More down ballot than that. We know the state legislative situation is pretty dire. Um, so there's a lot, I mean, this is not a time the Democrats can afford to rest in their laurels, even with the apparent success of the American Rescue Plan, uh, which should, you know, uh, if, uh, if things go according to plan, it should sort of feed into this potential economic boom. Uh, the vaccination uh, protocols and, and rollout seem to be going pretty well. It could be morning again in America, but, uh, you know, we live in an America which is not exactly fair for uh, where Democrats tend to have their strength. It overemphasizes the votes of white non-college rural and small town America uh, and you know, amplifies the voices of small states, which are more rural and now more Republican. So for all those reasons, the Democrats can ill afford to be leaving votes on the table. And uh, based on the 2020 results, it does appear that they really underperformed what they could have in that election. Um, as we know, Biden won. 
you know, thank you, Jesus. But um, it wasn't, uh, you know, despite a four-point popular vote victory, it was extremely narrow in a handful of states. Uh, the Democrats, once again, showed uh, serious weakness in rural and small-town America. They barely moved the needle on the white non-college vote, though actually uh, preventing it from moving in the other direction was actually extremely important to their victory. They cleaned up among white college-educated voters uh, in a lot of suburban areas, which um, was uh, clearly key to their overall victory. Um, but they tanked among Hispanic voters uh, probably as much as 16 or 18 margin points, which is absolutely huge. Um, and that is uh, you know, kind of a drawback for a party that was counting on the growing Hispanic population uh, to provide them with more votes in the future as their population weight increases. It also appears that they lost you know, several margin points among black voters, despite the fact that this was a year of racial justice and people thought that because of that, there would be an outpouring of support for the Biden Harris ticket. And I think that's that's important. You know, I mean, the the Trump's gains with Latino voters are significant, not just because it's a it's a healthy number of people and a, and a growing population. But I also think conceptually, right, like if you if you look at the longer arc of American history, uh, progressives looked at the 2016 election outcome, which clearly like clearly did have something to do with race and immigration and Trump's cultural politics. But I think the normal way progressives sort of processed that was to say, OK, there was a there was a racist backlash against demographic change in America. And we might be sad that that happened, but to some extent, like we can't, we can't cater to it. Um, and also we are confident that some, these very same demographic changes that there's a backlash against are, are on our side. They are lifting us up. And then when you look four years later and after a great increase in the sort of centrality of racial justice to progressive politics, you actually find yourself doing worse, a little bit worse with African-American voters and a lot worse with Hispanic voters. It's like something has gone wrong in the theory of how this is supposed to be working that to me at least a little bit transcends the the like the the narrow counting. Yeah, I mean, I think the interpretive lens that was put over the 2016 election has not served the Democrats well in terms of figuring out how to move forward and maximize their vote totals and progressive governance in the future. I do think the dominant hegemonic interpretation of the 2016 election was along the lines you said. There was this outpouring of racial resentment and xenophobia driven by the fact that a lot of white non-college voters in particular, are uncomfortable with the rising diversity of the country. Apparently, they get up every day in the morning and they think, oh, my God, there's more brown and black people in this country. You know, my status is under threat. <laughs> and so, you know, I've got to do something about this, which means vote for Donald Trump, which, you know, was certainly part of how some of these voters felt. But to me, it was always a little odd that there was sort of this determination to believe that the evolution of the American economic model and what that had meant for a lot of white working class voters, white non-college voters in uh, small town and rural America, and indeed in, in not necessarily just in small town and rural America, but all over the place, white non-college voters, according to what used to be the dominant liberal narrative about what had happened with the American political economy, were losing out. You know, this was a, uh, this is an economic model that has been underperforming for 
you know, the great bulk of the population. So it was always a little strange that people decided, well, okay, that had nothing to do with the 2016 election roll. Well, that had nothing to do with why Trump appealed to these voters. You know, I thought it was actually quite plausible that they saw their way of life threatened in a profound way that had a lot to do with these economic changes. And maybe they were taking it out and the people who weren't responsible for it. But the idea that it had nothing to do with uh, the economic changes uh, that had been wrought in their community struck me as quite fanciful. And I think, you know, to get back to your original point there, if that's the interpretive lens, it's all about racial resentment. It's all about xenophobia. It's all about these people who are beyond the pale refusing to accept the ways in which America is changing. You will therefore treat these voters and your future, political future, in a different way. You will assume that I can't get any of these voters back. You will assume that there, there is actually no downside to focusing on issues around race in a way that might further alienate these voters. Uh, and that, in fact, the voters who are non-white, who are part of this burgeoning coalition, will be absolutely delighted to deep six the deplorables and, uh, you know, move forward to this glorious multiracial, multicultural future. Um, as if, you know, that's really what these voters were interested in instead of, you know, things like healthcare, education, jobs, their communities, and so on, which struck me as a mistake at the time. And I think 2020 underscores the extent to which that was a mistake. And, and you know, you probably agree with this, Matt. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I think this is an ongoing debate within, within the center left. Well, and I think <laughs> I, I read a story, I think, from the, the Texas Tribune, um, this morning, and it was about uh, the residents of a kind of new apartment complex in East Austin, you know, mostly mostly white, uh, college-educated professionals. And there was a thing that used to always happen every Saturday in the neighborhood where mostly Latino and some Black men would come by with their kind of tricked-out cars, you know, and like cruise them around. And it's loud and it's noisy. It's it's a nuisance. And so the, uh, the, the new residents of the apartment building, they're complaining. And and one of them in the course of the complaints explains that it's an example of toxic masculinity. And I thought it was an interesting it was a good story just because it it made concrete that there can be a difference between the worldview of like progressive college graduates who use terms like toxic masculinity and probably also have very progressive views on race and, and other things like that, and working class people of color who are not going to be prejudiced against themselves, obviously, they but may not be read into like the full intersectional progressive cultural ideology and can in fact be alienated by aspects of progressive cultural politics whose proponents believe they're appealing to them. Yeah, I know this is, uh, I mean, that's an interesting example of, of this ongoing problem that, you know, as, as was well documented, college-educated white liberals are far to the left of black and Hispanic uh, voters on, on most of these social cultural issues. And they don't seem to understand that that might be the case and that the way they talk about things actually isn't in the wheelhouse of the median black and Hispanic voter. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of not only believing these things and having this sort of philosophy, ideology and way of talking about it, but not even un not understanding the ways in which not only white non-college voters might not dig the way you're talking, but black non-college voters and Hispanic non-college voters have no friggin idea what you're talking about. 
Uh, it's not the way they think about the world. And again, what they're interested in is their lives, their communities, their kids, jobs, healthcare, education, what have you, uh, making their way in life. And if they don't feel like the center left is offering them a good deal in terms of those kinds of things, and instead they seem more interested in getting them to talk and think a certain way about race, masculinity, uh, you know, transgender issues and what have you, uh, this is not a good look. It's not a good brand for the party. And as David Shore has pointed out and other people as well, you know, in our current political climate, as polarized and as nationalized as it is, it's very difficult for local candidates to escape the national brand. And the extent to which the national brand of the Democratic Party is associated with this kind of language and this kind of set of attitudes around these issues, it's, it's, a, it's a drawback with a lot of these voters. And, you know, that's all there is to it. I mean, you, you and I both looked at the Hidden Tribes survey where, you know, there was 9% of the population and they classified as progressive activists who seemed stuck out like a sore thumb from the other 91% of America. And it's the kind of people who would identify with a set of positions that would put them in that Austin apartment complex. Right. And I think, you know, it's telling uh, Philemon Vela's, uh, you know, House Democrat represents a South Texas, heavily Hispanic district. Uh, it had been a safe seat. I mean, his political achievement was really winning the nomination for that seat uh, several right, cycles right. ago. Kind of like AOC. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, it was different. Right, it, okay. You know, it's just yeah. like, a, like a regular guy. And then it unexpectedly turned out to be a close reelection for him in, in 2020. And so he's just announced his retirement uh, because, you know, he, he doesn't want to run a tough fight reelection in 2022. Um, he doesn't. You could try to put in the work to separate yourself from the national brand, but it's but it's challenging. And it's, I think, on some level, like not what he signed up for. Um, and it's something that, I mean, I, I think, you know, the kind of people who listen to this show or, you know, read takes on the internet should pay attention to what the local elected officials in those districts are saying or doing, because they, you know, they're not perfect, but they have a closer representational relationship to the communities they represent than do the sort of professional activists who, you know, their their job is to largely like get along with other activists, it seems to me, and not, you know, kind of necessarily represent what the people their their groups nominally represent are thinking. Right. Definitely. Well, look at the South Texas House representatives, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Cuellar and Gonzalez. I mean, they're they're all saying, you know, uh, yeah, I mean. Obviously, we don't want to be like Trump here, but there's kind of a problem here at the border. Uh, and there's kind of a problem that people don't seem to have a clear idea of what Democrats stand for in immigration. And they don't really know how we're going to fix the situation or contain it going forward. And, you know, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about the way we talk about this. I mean, this is a guy. These are representatives who are embedded in their local communities, which are heavily Hispanic. Uh, and right there at the border. And, uh, you know, maybe we should listen to them. Maybe they have something to tell us. I mean, same thing's true for uh, generally voters, um, representatives who have won in more swing and moderate districts. What do they have to say about how, you know, the Democratic Party should present themselves and what should they um, what do they think about the national brand of the Democratic Party? I mean, it, it seems to devolve into this uh, kind of, you know, the first impulse of people on the progressive left is simply to denounce the Spanbergers mm -hmm. of the world when they say defund the police was a friggin' disaster. And we lost votes because of that. It was kind of like, well, I mean, she's not making this stuff up. You know, she, right. she's in a tough district. 
you know, maybe this is the kind of districts Democrats have to win and win more of them. Maybe we should be like listening to what they have to say rather than denouncing them for not being sufficiently progressive. I mean, it does not matter what AOC thinks, you know, should be the national policy of this country. I mean, she is in a plus a zillion Democratic district where, you know, her cat could win if it got the nomination. So, you know, <laughs> who, who, ha who has more purchase here on political reality? I mean, it seems to me the answer is obvious. Um, so you you wrote about um, immigration recently and mm -hmm. sort of risks that you see for, for Democrats there. I mean, I think there's an obvious risk in just like what was on TV over the past weekend, right? I mean, if you have coverage of, you know, lots of people coming and squalid conditions and crisis at the border, you know, that's bad. And I think clearly the administration is going to try to you know, handle that one way or the other. And and I think they probably will. I mean, we won't have those exact conditions persisting. But, you know, what do you think has gone wrong with the way progressives think about the immigration topic? Well, I mean, I think that um, in a broad sense, I don't think the Democrats really have much of an immigration policy. I think the way it's evolved under depressive events in reaction to, you know, the evolution of the Republican Party, in reaction to the evolution of the advocacy community is there's not much interest in figuring out anymore how to combine immigration reform or a new immigration system with border security, um, which is like a, a huge import for most voters, including a lot of uh, most Hispanics. So there has evolved a kind of attitude toward immigration where we're, sim we're simply trying to liberalize it. We're simply trying to avoid cruelty and, uh, you know, maybe we should even have something approaching open borders. You know, maybe we should decriminalize border crossings. I mean, it was not without significance that in the Democratic primary debates, Castro could get up there and say we should decriminalize the border and like lots of people would raise their hands. And, you know, people who didn't would be criticized for being borderline racists or xenophobes. So, I mean, that's kind of peculiar when you think about it. And when you uh, examine in the history of democratic positions and immigration reform for the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's, it's quite a change where people are saying that when what really what they need to, they should be saying if they wanted to hit the center of the American electorate, is how can we have a fair, more humane immigration system that could also clamp down on illegal immigration? How, I mean, if we want more immigrants, how should they come in? On what basis? You know, what's what's our system? Is there a system? Is it under control? Um, you know, Democrats, I think, used to recognize that that was, you know, a, a, a central part of the immigration debate. They have to answer those questions. Now they think they don't have to answer those questions. And I think this is a problem. I mean, that's what's striking to me. I, I started a while ago on a, a book project that, you know, advocates for substantially more immigration. And I thought of it when I was conceiving of this as like a kind of out there position to take. And over the course of working on it, I felt almost overtaken by events in which, but I, not that Democrats started regularly arguing for more immigration, but that they switched to arguing against immigration enforcement. Right. Right. So that it's not saying, okay, we have 1 million people coming in a year legally that's not enough. Immigration's really good. We should have two million. But to just kind of saying, well, we should keep it at a million, but then 
nothing mean should ever happen. Right. And then people show up and, you know, they get asylum and we can't. I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, we, we're Democrats. We want to be nice about this. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that plays with the median American voter. Well, and it doesn't make and it doesn't make any sense. sense I mean, that, I, I mean, I think I think that's the thing. It's not it's it's not just politics. Right. Because like it would be one thing to say, OK, we should change the rules and we should designate, you know, three countries in Central America as such nightmarish dystopias that anybody can come and mm-hmm. you still like you show up here and you get a card. Right. It's just I mean, obviously, nobody likes to see people treated poorly but the way rules are enforced is that bad consequences happen if you break the rules and so if there's going to be rules then like yes like somebody is going to face like sad consequences over them right right. and yeah i mean it just seems like nobody wants to really discuss like like what is the goal here yeah exactly exactly and i think i think that's enough of it and i think hopefully Going forward, Democrats will start to realize that uh, they, in fact, do have to articulate a policy that includes all those different components and that people aren't going to put up with something that is so much more diffuse and it won't achieve its aims, right? As policy, it won't achieve its aims. So, uh, you know, again, back to the Democratic primaries. I mean, it was passing strange that decriminalizing the border was all of a sudden like a a viable uh, thing to argue for in the Democratic Party, because that does seem to apply. There are rules. But if you break the rules, hey, no problem. Yeah, people argued about, oh, well, that's not really what it means. It's kind of like defund the police. It doesn't really mean defund the police, you know. So, but, uh, you know, when you're explaining on that level, you're clearly losing. And it's clearly, like, not a great idea. <laughs> okay, let's let's take a break and, and then we're going to come back with something else. Okay. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. 
Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So you did a piece last fall that I've thought about a lot since it came out called mm-hmm. The Five Deadly Sins of the Left. Um, but most of them, like four out of the five, it seemed to me, sort of lumped together as some form or another of excessive pessimism about things. Is that is that how you would read it? Uh, well, the first one was about identity politics. The second was about, um, well, I guess the retro socialism you know, capitalism is is hopeless is I guess you could argue that's a pessimistic kind of take on capitalism. So I suppose, yeah, and catastrophism, growth, uh, technophobia, growth phobia, techno pessimism, growth phobia. Yeah, those are all those are a lot about pessimism. And I wrote a whole book about that, which um, didn't really get around much. I guess, you know, you can only be so counterintuitive. And- the optimistic <laughs> leftist is an excellent book. Um, no, so, right. So, so you're f- five deadly sins, right? So one's identity politics. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, retro socialism, catastrophism, growth phobia, techno pessimism. Mm-hmm. And to me, like, these are all ways of denying that the sort of basic operation of, you know, quote unquote, capitalism is like okay and some good some good stuff comes from that right and like normal liberalism i think was always like okay this is fine but like also people need health insurance also we need schools like no you can't dump toxic waste there in the river but like it's good that people found companies and do things and buy and sell and and make new stuff right there's this kind of like downer left where everything is teetering on the brink of catastrophe and nothing will ever be fixed until there's a you know after the revolution or something or something yeah no i was i mean that's part of what led to me writing that book is uh you know it seemed to me it had evolved over time but it had just become progressively worse that i mean i guess it all started with the you know the rise of reagan and the sort of faltering of the american political economic model and it was, in fact, the case that American economic performance, as it affected the bulk of the population, had become quite poor. And it was the case that the globe was warming. And that was bad. And somehow that kind of evolved into a view that not only is there not enough progress taking place, there's no progress taking place. In fact, we're moving backwards. And in fact, maybe industrial society in general is just a bad idea. Maybe growth is a bad, maybe technology is fundamentally a, uh, you know, sort of more cost and benefit. I mean, it just seemed to me that views were evolving in the left that were like so wildly at variance with the history of modern capitalism and the history of advanced societies. It just, you know, if you knew anything about the history, you knew how far things had evolved in the last 100, 150 years and how friggin' great that was. You know, how much better we live than we ever have and how much we owe to technology and how much we owe to growth. And then, in fact, even since the 1970s, there's been significant progress, uh, even in the United States, but certainly around the world. So what is it about the left that they look at a world that's actually improving in many ways and obviously needs much more improvement, which is always what the left stood for. But they look at it and they're just like, you know, 
everything's completely fucked, you know. <laughs> and I just didn't get it. That doesn't seem right to me. And I think the left should be, uh, you know, about optimism, about our ability to fix things if we if we work together collectively. And if you want that to happen and you believe that should happen, I'm not sure it's a great selling point to say things are bad and getting worse and we're basically doomed unless we do X within the next five years. And I would rope, frankly, some of your identity politics critique almost into this same bucket. Because to me, part of what's odd about the current left discourse on uh, race and, and identity issues is the kind of denialism of what seems like obvious progress, that you have much more interracial marriage than you used to. You mm-hmm. had, um, there was a time, you know, not so long ago, people would say, oh, well, Obama, he gave a great speech, but like, is America ready, quote unquote, for a black president, right? People oh, yeah. thought the country would be maybe just far too racist for that to happen. Uh, but it wasn't true. You know, he won. He was very popular. He did far better than Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden with non-college white voters. Um, mm-hmm. Gay and lesbian people won the right to marry. We recently, uh, transgender people got employment protection under old titles of, of the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, that's not to say, like, everything is perfect or nobody has ever done or said anything racist or or the burdens of the past don't weigh on us. But to me, the portrait of a kind of unchanging block of white supremacy is a very odd way to look at history that we've just like seen unfolding in front of our eyes. Like America is much more diverse than it used to be. Uh, mm-hmm. American elite is much more diverse than it used to be. People express more tolerant attitudes than they used to. And it's become very um, declassé to to speak in any kind of positive way about change. Yeah, no, that's very true, Matt. And I think you're right. You could kind of put it in that pessimism bucket in a way of, of not seeing the change and not viewing it what changed or has been positively. I mean, but in world historic terms, in terms of evolution of American society, the extent to which social norms have changed and equality and tolerance, views of equality and tolerance have increased is absolutely, you know, a cataclysmic level of change. I mean, this is, I mean, it's amazing when societies change this fast and we have changed this fast since the 1960s. I mean, there's an enormous change in attitudes toward race, an enormous change in attitudes toward gender, an enormous change in attitudes toward sexuality. I mean, these are big, big, big changes. And it's not just people like are saying stuff to the pollsters because they know what they're supposed to say. People's attitudes really are different. And, you know, the laws have really changed. And people, you know, subordinate groups, if you want to call them that, have really progressed. Things really, there's been an enormous amount of positive change. And yet, among our, you know, that 9% progressive activist group we're talking about from the Hidden Tribes Project, it's all a lie. It's all a lie, Matt. Nothing has changed, you know. We're still the same white supremacist, you know, heteropatriarchal society we've always been. And, you know, if you think so, you're kidding. You're kidding yourself. And in fact, the very fact that you'd even say that just shows how reactionary you are. I mean, the goalposts have been moved by this kind of small progressive activist contingent to the point where a lot of people in polite society feel it's like somehow untoward to 
talk about this progress and act like it's real. And I think that's, that's in a way, it's kind of tragic. I mean, that's not what America's about, and that's not what people want America about uh, to be about. They want it to be about positive change and about, they, you know, let's recognize the progress we made and try to make more. I think that's a standard centrist American position. And yet, according to this new ideology, that's that's not allowed. That's not even possible. Yeah, and you you saw this in the um. There was this little sort of tempest in a teapot over you know San Francisco renaming Abraham Lincoln High School, and you know people were yelling about it, and some people would say, "Oh, why do you care about this? Like, why does it matter?" But to me, it was a telling aspect of the, the, this changing attitude toward the past where like it's of course true that abraham lincoln did and thought all kinds of things that by today's standards seem bad Mm -hmm. but the normal way that we have talked about american history is to look at progress and the sources of progress and the drivers of progress and lincoln is obviously one of those figures right it's not to say that mid-1860s politics is like the state-of-the-art thinking, but that this is this is the story of America, right? As a, you know, establishment of constitutional government, expansion of the franchise, end of slavery, expansion of the vote to women, civil rights movement, that, you know, there's a kind of progressive story that you tell, and then you as a progressive try to situate yourself as the heir to all that change. So I can say... The New Deal was really good doesn't mean that like I don't know the about internment of the Japanese or sordid compromises with, with Jim Crow senators. Right, right. But that like social progress is possible and it happens. And like you and me, we together are part of that change, right? That's the kind of upbeat, you know. I mean, this is the title of your book was was Optimistic Leftist, I think. And it's totally contrary to the like oh my God, here's 17 terrible things that every major historical figure ever did. Because I don't, I don't understand what kind of politics that's supposed to, that's supposed to be. Like, why do people want to be in a movement like that? Like, like a movement of losers that's about telling, (laughs) that's about telling you how screwed you are and how inefficacious everything you will ever try to do is going to be. Exactly. Yeah. I think the story as you laid out, Matt, about you know, sort of the successive progressive steps is a, is a good story. And, and by God, we should stick to it. And it's not an improvement on that story to talk about how, you know, Abraham Lincoln's uh, had some thoughts that weren't quite right. And we should take his name off the school and George Washington, Thomas, whatever. Um, and you ask what kind of politics it is. Well, it's not politics. It's witnessing. If it is politics, it's politics within a very narrow framework a very small sectors of the country, very small constituencies that these people respond to, the social networks they're embedded in and how they're representing within those networks. It's not a politics that's about how do we move the majority of the American people in a progressive direction. It's not, it's not that at all. I mean, people who practice those kinds of things and say those kinds of things and bear that kind of witness, I don't think they're even thinking about it. To them, it's a moral crusade they have to say this stuff well because they have to, but it's not it's not politics <laughs> as we would normally understand it. I mean, it strikes me as very academic, you know, in in a way that's not 
necessarily bad in its context. You know, you you grow up, you go to middle school, you go to high school, you learn a nice story about America. Um, then, you know, maybe you take a more advanced class in college and, mm-hmm. and you learn right. that things are more complicated than that. Right. Um, and like, that's great. Like, that's what that's what higher education is is for. But I, I feel like so much of what happens now is people sort of try to try to bring that bring that back home to practical organizing in a way that doesn't work. Um, and it just doesn't, it doesn't accord with the math of who's present uh, in, in the country in any real kind of way that the vast majority of people, you know, don't have college degrees, um, certainly not from like super fancy schools um, and are not that interested in totally abstract intellectual ideas versus i don't know like are you going to help me with some basic problem in my life yeah no the vast majority of the american population is is not interested in this stuff you know they have other concerns they have different you know different level of education they live in different kinds of communities um what plays in a coastal cosmopolitan metro area among educated constituencies is just very different than what plays in the rest of the country. And I think that, again, back to this, you know, is this really politics? I mean, politics is about understanding who your audience is and figuring out how to maximize your share of that audience. And I honestly think a lot of these people, they're not thinking about that. I mean, it's just not front and center, right? I mean, it's about here's what I believe and by God, I'm going to say it. And in fact, I'm a little nervous if I don't say it, I'm going to get criticized. So, and to the extent Democrats are associated with this is kind of sort of your opening comment on this is people think it's just confined to these areas. So I worry about it. The reason to worry about it is because it does affect real politics. It affects the national brand of the Democratic Party. It's a, it affects what uh, activists think and how they, they present themselves to, to the mass of voters. You are not going to maximize your vote share with that kind of politics. And the extent to which you're associated with it is very much a debit. And the idea that you can simply ignore it, you know, well, okay, you know, maybe they're going a little too far there, but, you know, basically they mean, well, they're good hearted and we just shouldn't pay any attention. At some point, um, you have to dissociate yourself from it. You have to have, as David Shore has put it in some of his interviews, you have to have a little message discipline about uh, how you're presenting yourself to the the typical voter. That's what I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, you think about uh, Joe Biden is obviously not uh, like super left activist uh, on any of these dimensions. And he was a very, you know, successful political campaign. He won the Democratic nomination uh, pretty handily, despite a lack of sort of elite buy in. And then he beat Trump. But he also doesn't seem inclined in the way that Bill Clinton was to sort of actively distance himself um, from from left politics. And I wonder, I mean, do you think there's things that would make sense for elected officials to do to try to sort of rebrand themselves? Well, that's an interesting question that I've debated um, <laughs> internally with myself. <laughs> it's a pandemic. We don't have a lot of people to debate with. That's why, right, that's why right. we need yeah, podcasts. Yeah. I think eventually it may come to something like that, but I don't think that Joe Biden is the guy to do it. I think Biden is a, a guy who's, who has a tremendous ability to cleave to the exact center <laughs> of, of the political party of which he's a member. And I think at this point, 
he would not feel comfortable drawing a line about any of this stuff. To the extent he draws a line, it's to concentrate on the stuff that he thinks is important, mouth some platitudes that are in the wheelhouse of some of the left activists in the party and hope that they'll just sort of be quiet. <laughs> but I don't think he has a plan beyond that. Right. I mean, it may, I mean, the, the way to draw a line would be about something that's really becomes a hot button issue where the left is acting up and, you know, it's just really screwing the party. And then you, you sort of, someone gets out there and says, no, this is not what Democrats stand for. I mean, they tried to do that with the defund the police, at least Biden did, some other people did, but uh, it never really came to the point of as direct attack on, on the defund the police people as, it wasn't a direct attack on defund the police. It was just that we don't, I'm not for defunding the police. So at some point you may have to do that. Exactly how that would go down and how it would really work out. I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> but I think that it's, it's, it's something that is, is a live issue because as long as a Democratic Party is as influenced as it is by cultural leftism, that's as long as they will fail to maximize their vote share. So it's a it's a problem. I mean, I, I want to amplify what, what, what you said about defunding police because it's a pet cause of mine because i do hear from a lot of people who say well you know i mean it's not like biden uh signed up for defunding police so how could it have hurt in any way but you know he he sort of stiff-armed the idea but he didn't criticize it right like i wrote an article that said i think this defund police activism is irresponsible that I think they're saying things that go against research. I think that they are going to create a lot more crime in America's cities and that people are going to suffer if you go do that. And people got very mad at me. You know, like it was a it was a live hot button controversy. Um, and Biden didn't didn't do that. Right. And there's costs. Right. Like he he tried to not endorse the unpopular view while also not picking fights or making enemies. Right, exactly. And that's a that's a trade-off compared to a sort of a more aggressive take where you say, like, this is bad. These people are not doing good things. Uh, because all the different sort of elements of progressive politics are networked in with each other. You know, there's common mm -hmm. groups of, of funding. And, and this got, I think, in uh, Sarah Gideon's race in Maine, it got her in trouble where Susan Collins sort of called out that a lot of the groups that were supporting Gideon themselves were supporting defunding police. So wasn't she somehow uh, a Trojan horse? Which, like, I think she wasn't, but it shows it's it's difficult to distance yourself from kind of law. We should take a break. And then I, I do want to talk about a, a topic where I think Biden does break with the left more clearly. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. 
You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So the the new site that you're involved with is called the Liberal Patriot. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to ask you about patriotism, because that, I think, is the place where Biden sort of most clearly stakes his claim, right? He had this like America's an idea ad in, in the primary and his inaugural address, you know, is very, it's very big on America. He's like, he's, he's into America, which on one level is like kind of banal for the president <laughs> to be into the country that he is the leader of. But I mean, I, I I take it you think this is contentious enough that it's worth saying there's there's a liberal patriot as opposed to somebody else. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the uh, tendency of the left to back off from the idea that we're all one country, you know, we're citizens united together across race and class, and there's something pretty good about America, and we should all pull together to make it better. You know, the tendency to sort of treat that gingerly has not been a good thing for the left. How are you going to unite people around a project for the common good uh, that will require tremendous resources to move the country in the direction that we we want to, unless you're basically pitching it as a, you know, this is the national story. This is a story for all Americans. So, uh, you know, the fact that people are backing away from that struck us as just just wrong, and that we need to, in fact, put that front and center, that what America is about is it's about it's the melding together of all these different races, creeds, colors, and so on. And we're all moving together, hopefully in the same direction. And it's worthwhile to try to promote the common good. And the only way you can promote the, can promote the common good in a nation is by you know, embracing the nation, embracing America, embracing patriotism. Um, so, yeah, to- we're, we're definitely totally into that. And we, we, we've noticed that the left seems to be less interested in that. I mean, look, to get back to our progressive activists from the, the Hidden Tribes poll, you know, they, 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 this group of highly educated, highly liberal uh, citizens were the only group of all the groups they broke out in the Hidden Tribes project that were basically uninterested in patriotism. Like 35% said they were proud of the country or patriotic. So this is a real ongoing problem. It, it seems like a lot of people on the left would be more interested in saying, you know, this America is about 400 years of white supremacy 
then America is 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 a project that uh, you know we're, we're we're seeking to perfect over time. As you know, someone like Barack Obama put it, someone like Biden tries to put it. This is a necessary and unavoidable, and we shouldn't even try to avoid it component of a progressive philosophy for for the country and about moving forward. So, uh, yeah, I mean the the tendency to to think patriotism is like uncool is just <laughs> it's just really bad. And I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to try to convince anyone that I'm cool, but I, I think this is really important tie in to the to the immigration stuff that we were talking about before that mm-hmm. I think the kind of immigration politics that help Democrats is if Latino and Asian Americans hear xenophobic anti-immigration rhetoric that seems to indicate that like the presence of Asian and Latino people is destroying the country, that that alienates them, that pushes them mm-hmm. toward Democrats. But if Democrats adopt the view that the centerpiece of immigration is that the country is somehow like illegitimate and needs to be dissolved, right? That there's a kind of um, immigration advocacy of like pure cosmopolitanism, right? And that cuts against the fact that people who move to America from other countries and their kids are usually quite aware of the upsides of America, right? Like people don't come here from other countries because America is a nightmare of racism. Um, like it wouldn't make sense, right? Like why, like why, why are people from Central America trying to get into Texas, right? It's like, there must be something good happening here. Um, even if there's other bad things, right? People want to come to America. And I think if you can't talk about immigration in a way that aligns with that, Mm -hmm. you're not speaking to immigrants and to immigrant communities. Yeah, I mean, uh, their their desire to come here and having come here is literally unintelligible. If you take the view that America is, in fact, this nightmarish dystopia of racism, I mean, in whatever metric you might choose to use, uh, you know, America is like a pretty good deal compared to a lot of other countries, you know, that aren't, say, Western Europe or whatever. But uh, so, of course, people want to come here. Of course they do. God bless them. But they can't all come. And for most normal voters, there's nothing to debate here. They can't all come. So let's figure out who can come and let's let's be fair about this and let's not, you know, let's be nice about it. But, you know, there got to be rules. And if they come here, it's probably because they want to be here because this is a good country. And, uh, you know, that makes sense to me. It's, you know, speaking as a median voter here, I get it. But this thing of like, you know, we got to let everybody in because otherwise that would be kind of not nice. But on the other hand, this place really sucks. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to people. It does not compute. And just normal, like normal progressive things, like we should we should have a welfare state. We should spend money to help the poor. We should have social security, right? Mm-hmm. All, all of those ideas, I mean, it's not just politics, right? It doesn't make sense substantively unless you think that Americans have special obligation to other Americans, right? right? If you find a, I think like actually one of the main things, you know, super rich right-wing people will say is I don't feel bad about opposing a welfare state 
because even the poorest Americans are like not that poor compared to, I don't know, right, you know, Burma right. or, or, you know, something like that. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I suspect mostly they just like to keep their money, um, but it's not false, right? That like the bulk of true human economic deprivation takes place outside our borders. And the whole logic of like, well, we need to do stuff. We need to educate our children. We need to take care of our healthcare problems is the idea that the country means something. Right. Otherwise, the like the concept, it's not just like the politics, right? Like on the merits, the project doesn't make sense unless you see the nation as as valuable and it seems to me that this is why the um i worry all the time about the total collapse of the european progressive political parties because they they sort of dissolved their nationhood without like a a fallback plan as to as to what happens next right yeah no the welfare state welfare states are national projects and the extent we like the welfare state and think it does a lot of great things, I mean, this this is all in the context of, of nations and national projects. My buddy John Judas's book on nationalism is, is very good along these lines, uh, discussing how nationalism is, while it has its downside, it also has its upside because it provides the basis upon which most of what we really like about advanced societies has been constructed. Uh, about the ability to redistribute wealth, about the ability to provide the social safety, and about the ability to educate everybody. These are uh, reflections of the welfare state, and the welfare state is in, in turn somewhat a reflection of the nation and nationalism. So um, there's, there's, no, there's no way out of this one. If you believe in the welfare state and you want to make it better, then uh, you, know, you can't afford to like deep six the nation and deep six patriotism. It just doesn't work. So you're, you're probably tired of, of people asking you about the emerging democratic majority, but I think it was a really good book. And I guess like one way I think about the past 20 years is that, you know, all the stuff that you said in that book was totally true. And then what happened is that both parties just sort of moved left mm-hmm. relative to where they were before. So the system stayed maybe more balanced than one might have thought. 20 years ago. Is that is that your interpretation of it? Well, I think that's a, a reasonable interpretation. Um, I do think that it's that it is true that a lot of the changes that we said were going on and would continue to have an effect uh, that we outlined in the emerging democratic majority did turn out to be important and true. I mean, the whole political terrain of the country has shifted dramatically. The Democratic coalition has evolved <clears throat> in the direction that we described in terms of educated professionals, non-whites, left-leaning women, what have you, urbanized cosmopolitan areas, whatever. I mean, the Democrats, because of these mix effects, as it were, just the changing mix of the country, they have been able to develop a potential majority coalition. And it's inefficiently distributed and it's disadvantaged by the structure of the American electoral system, but in many ways it's there. But with any political party, you know, you you exist in a political system. You have to, given those changes, you have to maximize your advantage from those changes. And of course, the other political party gets to play too, gets to respond to those changes. So I think that the Democratic Party has clearly internalized the mix effects part (laughs) of the emerging Democratic majority. They get it. 
you know, and in fact, arguably, they're a victim of that mix effect success because it's allowed them to disregard another component we talked about in the book, which is that, you know, if you're going to take advantage of these changes, you have to maintain a certain baseline share of the white non-college vote that that was going to continue to be important and that therefore you needed to adopt the politics that would include these people and that they could, you know, they could maintain some sort of faith in. And that that didn't happen. White non-college voters started shifting, you know, rapidly away from the Democratic Party over the last couple of decades. And we saw the culmination of that with the, the Trump election, which is one way of just thinking about the basic mathematics of the situation. Your mix effect has a certain effect on overall electoral outcomes. That mix effect can be neutralized and even pushed back against by enough support shifts within large segments of the population. And that's exactly what happened with Democrats and the white non-college vote. And I think part of the problem now is that Democrats aren't really sure how to, how to deal with these shifting and moving parts of their coalition in a way that's really going to allow them to have a much more stable you know, hold in the electorate and, and implement the kind of progressive governance they'd like to. I mean, we described in the book something we called progressive centrism, which certainly did not include a lot of the things the Democratic Party is now toying with. Uh, and again, that's a part of the book that I think has widely been ignored. Well, and you know, that I, I wanted to sort of connect this to what we were talking about before, optimism, pessimism, right? That like one thing I hear from left-wing people all the time is that like American politics has been in this like ceaseless rightward shift, right? As if like real trends from the 70s and 80s had just like projected endlessly forward in time, mm -hmm. which if you actually look, if you look at like the content of Democratic Party positions circa 2000, 2004, 2008, and compare them to the ones today, like they've just moved way to the left. And some of that is good and some of it is politically appropriate. But then like some of it is why you'd lose elections that you otherwise could have one, right? Like there's a there's a margin, but you'll you're gonna misperceive the choice if you mm -hmm. think that everything has been a constant series of of pandering to the center. When especially for the past 12 years, I think it's just like really clearly been the opposite. That, you know, on some right. issues, you know, like marriage equality has become a clear majoritarian position. So, like, of course, Democrats have embraced that. But Democrats have shifted their positions on immigration without a super obvious theory of why, like how how that's supposed to work or who whose votes it's supposed to win you. Um, and you could just, like, go back if you want to get back some of the voters you've lost. Yeah, I mean, the center has moved to the left, both within the Democratic Party and in American society as a whole. And the Democratic Party reflects that. If you look at what Joe Biden ran on in 2020, it's kind of like Joe Biden Marxist-Leninist compared to what Obama ran on in 2008. I mean, this is a very, very progressive program. And we now have you know, a kind of macroeconomic philosophy uh, being practiced within the Biden administration of the American Rescue Plan that is quite a break with the past in a very good way. So the idea we're not making progress is, is absolutely ludicrous. And the party has, you say, but, but, you know, all of the ways in which the party has moved to the left don't necessarily comport with the way the country as a whole has moved to the left, right? Some of it, I think, on economic philosophy terms, in terms of macroeconomic philosophy, in terms of some of these 
programs that are being uh, considered to be implemented, I think this is you know, a fair representation of where most people are at these days. If you look at some of the more boutique social issues, if you look at something like defund the police, this is zero to do with how the country has moved to the left and in fact reflects how democratic activists have moved sharply to the left on certain things. The idea of America is, you know, it's like a useful thing to talk about America as a white supremacist society. It does not reflect the fact the country has moved to the left and now, you know, it's a consensual position. America is a benighted white supremacist society and has been for 400 years. But that is the view of a relatively small sector that is quite influential within the Democratic Party. So, um, you know, I think we should take the gains we've got and build on them and implement them and not kid ourselves that every way in which the Democratic Party has moved to the left is good. In fact, there are ways in which it's probably going to have to move back to the center if it wants to take advantage of the other ways in which the country and the party have clearly moved to the left and are kind of in, in sync. So that's what we, you know, back to our earlier discussion about let's not leave votes on the table and let's, uh, you know, make as uh, much progress as we can in a forward progressive direction. And that may mean giving up on some things that are dear to the hearts of some of our more left-wing activist uh, friends. But, you know, we can be optimistic about this. Too. <laughs> I, and I think there's, there's a potential basis here for a real sort of neo-progressive era. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen automatically. And that doesn't mean it'll be easy. But the basis is there for it. Uh, and I think Democrats would be very foolish if they didn't take a good hard look you know, the national brand and sort of how the party's evolving and say, okay, well, you know, we've got an opportunity here to do some really great things. Let's figure out how to maximize that and not just sort of like stumble forward. Yeah, I mean, my my closing pitch to, you know, members of the 9% uh, who may not love the tenor of this conversation is that if you, but if you listen seriously to what people are saying about uh, race uh, in the United States, right? So much of what the the concrete manifestation of these forms of historical injustice and disadvantage manifests themselves in material disadvantage. And exactly the issues where Democrats are most likely to win are the ones where they are talking in concrete ways about redressing people's material disadvantages, right? If you can to an extent, skip the part where you treat everybody to a lecture about how 200 years of American history is awful, and you just get to the part where, like, you make the school better, um, or where you give people more money, or where you rapidly return the economy to full employment, Mm -hmm. or, like, their commute gets quicker. It's not just that's how you win. That's, like, actually how you address the problems that are being raised if you right, try to right. think through to like 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 what is the point of all of this right is to help people in specific ways and those kinds of messages are the more appealing ones because they're messages aimed at people who like have problems in their mm-hmm. lives right and they need help not like a lecture about the nature of society or something. Yeah, skip the lecture, fix the problems. <laughs> I think we got it. There yeah. we go. All we right, it. it's all solved. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. Um, this has been really great. Um, 
Rich Ashera, liberal patriot, uh, fellow at the Center for American Progress, author of several great books, uh, Optimistic Leftist is, is a really good one that I think everybody should pick up. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>